Welcome to Transform Your Life Radio, where lively conversations with experts will help light your way to a happier, healthy, more fulfilled life. This is your host, Rosemary. The basis of this radio show is that all the aspects of a woman's life are like each individual spoke in a wheel. And if they are in good shape, well cared for, not bent or broken, where they meet at the hub, they will produce good health and happiness. If they are not attended to, where they meet produces ill health and a life of potential sadness and struggle. Our guest today is Sandy Peckinpah, and she will be addressing the vital spoke called resilience. How can we deal with what life throws at us so that we maintain our balance in life? Sandy was married to David Peckinpah, director-producer of such TV shows such as Beauty and the Beast, Silk Stockings, to mention a few of his accomplishments. She also helped collaborate with him on these projects. She was an actress. She's an author of several books, a speaker, a radio host, premier realtor in Murrieta, California, and is just about to release a new book. She will share with us first her life story and then help us by giving us information on how to traverse hard times as she did and come out the other end not just surviving but thriving. And then she will share with us how we can get to know her better and what her new book is about. I am thrilled to have Sandy Peck and Paul with us today. Welcome, Sandy. Oh, Rose, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad you're here. Okay, we're going to start off by a quote from your blog. And it starts off with this quote. Once upon a time, I had a fairy tale life, and then it wasn't. Please tell us a little bit about your life and how it was a fairy tale and then it wasn't. Mm, well, thank you. I always grew up with books and I was a huge believer in fairy tales. So much so that when I was in my 30s, I went back to school and studied the art of writing fairy tales. Wow. And I did have a fairy tale life. I, we had a wonderful show business life. I had so much fun doing something that we loved doing. And I think the first time that I ever realized you could actually do something you love for a living was when I was just about 22. And my husband and I were attending the part, birthday party for his uncle, Sam Peckinpah, who was a famous tele, uh, film director. Right. And at the party was Chris Christopherson, Bob Dylan, Ringo Starr, Steve McQueen, Alex oh Ross. And I was so starstruck. But the thing that really hit home for me was the fact that all of these people absolutely loved what they were doing. They were passionate about their work, and it brought them joy. And so when my husband and I were flying back to Monterey, he was uh, passionate about writing, and I said, let's write screenplays for a living. And Miracle Oh, Miracle. is that where the idea came from? <laughs> oh, yes. wow. Okay. Yes. And so, and he was a writer. Um, he w loved writing. He wrote poetry. I've always written either in a journal or short stories or poetry. And um, he wrote a novel, and we realized quickly that in writing novels, 
you don't always get paid. <laughs> <laughs> Writing novels is very difficult because it takes a long time to finally get to the point that you actually get published and get paid. Wow. So we set on our, on our journey of being in the entertainment business, and we were really uh, so I'm so grateful we were so successful. And my husband had a very lucrative career. But like all careers, there are always ups and downs. Mm-hmm. And uh, right about the time when we were having a real high, which was his Emmy nomination for Beauty and the Beast, I was pregnant with my third child. And I thought, can life get any better? This is right. truly the most wonderful experience. We've finally gotten to where our goal was set when we started screenwriting. And... Um, a, f- a few months later, I had a daughter born with a birth defect. And I know, Rose, one of the things that I love about you is you're such a champion of enlightening people to children with special needs. Absolutely. And this was my first experience with having a children, a child born less than perfect. And I, I called it the beauty of imperfection right. because I quickly fell in love with my daughter who was born with a cleft. And it was a severe external facial cleft. And I thought, what kind of life can she have? I didn't know anything about cleft repairs. It was so frightening to me. And you had said that you thought it was ironic because here was your show, Beauty and the Beast, and it was about a person with deformities, and you had a child, and you were like, what? This is really ironic. Well, exactly, and I'm glad you brought that up because – David and I spent many hours as he was writing Beauty and the Beast talking about what would it be like to be born with a face that you couldn't show in public. Oh, my goodness. And we spent a long time thinking about that. Um, And then when it came to the fact that our own daughter was born with a face that was not perfect and, in fact, was very difficult to take out in public, people would be so upset. Not cruel, just upset. And... um, It was about four months until she had her first surgery. But in the meantime, I had been studying writing fairy tales because it was one of my passions. Right. And I came up with a story called Rosie the Imperfect Angel. And this story was my gift to my daughter, but also my gift to my sons to share with them the evolution of what it's like to be born with an imperfect face. Right. And I wanted a tool that I could take into the schools and be able to share with other children when Julianne started school because she was going to have a series of surgeries. And so this tool ended up getting published, and I am so grateful because it ultimately was uh, recorded as a spoken word CD and made it all the way to the Grammy ballot. Amazing. So to have my little fairy tale make it that far was truly a miracle. But more importantly, I saw what it did in the classroom when I was introducing the idea of the beauty of imperfection and how we all have those imperfect things inside of us that maybe torment us. Like for me, as silly as this sounds, I hate it. I have red hair, and I hated it growing up. I was teased. I had freckles. I hated them. The girls that I wanted to be like were tan, tall, and had dark hair. And (laughs) it was so frustrating to me. But what I found in going into the schools is that everybody has something that they struggle with. And so that was a huge awakening for me. 
Right. Well, my fairy tale sort of got back on track because I thought, okay, I got this. I did it. Right. My daughter is on her way with her surgery. She's looking absolutely gorgeous. As uh, With each surgery, it was a huge improvement. And then all of a sudden in 1993, my son, my oldest boy, Garrett, woke up with a fever and was dead the next morning. And that was a so tragic. huge crisis that few people, thank God, have to experience. But they always call it the worst that can happen. Mm-hmm. And so when that happened to us, the first person at our doorstep was a gentleman that you may know, Rose, um, Steve Cannell. He mm-hmm. used to write Roxford Files and a Right, right. Well, he came to our door the day that Garrett died and had a book in his hand called uh, The Bereaved Parent. And he said, I don't know if you know this, but this happened to me and my wife a few years ago. We lost our oldest boy, Derek. And I want to tell you that this book helped us through it. And I also have to tell you that you will be fine, but it'll take a lot of work. Mm. And I looked at that man as though he was my ray of hope, my ray of sunshine, that if he could do it, he and his wife, Marcia, could do it. I could too. And I held that book in my hand and I kept it with me for the next many, many, many months and was, um, went through the process of grief with that book guiding me. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I really started thinking about the importance of how that book helped me and how Steve helped me. And that was to offer hope. And I realized that that was my calling that once I got through what I call the five stages of grief, when everybody, the the traditional five stages of grief were uh, developed by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Right. And I realized that it's never linear. You go up and down, in and out. Sometimes you regress all the way back to stage one. But you finally get through them, and you start to notice that the times of difficulty get shorter and the times of joy get longer. And I like to call the sixth stage of grief resilience. Okay. Because for me, it didn't all make sense until I finally got to the point that I felt that I had activated resilience in myself. Because and you found that other step other than just the the steps that uh, Kubler-Ross tells about. Right. Right, exactly. And that, for me, was the most important step. Gosh, my life could go on. You know, I thought, oh, I don't have to choose to be unhappy forever. And it was a huge awakening to me. And since then, I've worked with a lot of parents uh, with their tragic losses. And I've also gone into the schools and, and conducted a class for children who have lost siblings or parents that's one and walked with them through the the stages that they needed to walk and I learned so much from every person's um, uh, experience and watched this amazing will to survive that comes out if we let it right and, and the I book you wrote the book you wrote for Julianne also mm-hmm. was adapted by the facial how do you call it that society yes. 
Yes, actually, it's being used still in hospitals okay. and clinics around the country. And the um, American Cleft Palate Association okay, that's was it. really wonderful in their support of it and uh, ended up having lots of those books donated to them, and they went out into the hospitals and clinics and schools. And it was just a very proud moment for me because, I, you know, I think you've experienced this, Rose, when you have that moment of clarity when something happens and you realize that you don't just let it lay flat. There's something that you have to do. Right, you're supposed to do with it. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, right. it was all for naught, it seems. You know. Right. That's and right. And then after you dealt with Julianne, then you dealt with Garrett, then what happened mm -hmm. to David? Mm. Well, my husband tragically died also at the age of 54. And I always say that he died of a broken heart because he really struggled with his grief. And I, it was a, a sudden heart attack, but he lived with a tremendous amount of stress and unresolved grief. And I really believe that unresolved grief is a huge issue for so many people that it goes unrecognized. Yeah. And you think that you're doing fine, and then all of a sudden, you know, something happens, and that grief flares up again and you know you feel it and it also all of a sudden it ruins your life and I realized that I was the only one that my children had left I had three remaining children um, mm. my daughter and two sons right. and I had to activate that resilience as I said and I did not want them to live an unhappy life I was so devoted to making sure that they were healthy and whole and that they would never feel the fear of losing me, too, right. to unhappiness or grief. I had to honor them. And so, um, as you know, I sort of developed this program called Breakthrough to Happy. Right. And I write a blog at uh, – do you mind if I just tell where the blog Absolutely. is Absolutely. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. It's at www.breakthroughtohappy.com. And I write an occasional blog there talking about the different things that have um, come up in my life that I've had to deal with, including the, the losses that I spoke about. But even things like I had to change my whole life at the age of 50. Suddenly my husband was not around to, to support me and the children. And right. so I had to create a new career. And I had to do it with gusto. I'm telling you, all of a sudden, I had these three children, and they were close to getting close to college age. And I thought, my goodness, now what? What and, am I going to do? Um, right. Yeah, yeah. And so I found such joy in sort of reinventing myself. And I think sometimes people look at things like those upsets or those, you know, somebody gets fired from a job. And they say, okay, now what? That's the worst thing that could happen. Well, no, you know what? That's an opportunity. And that's what exactly. I had to really start learning. And easier said than done. I had so many moments when I felt so afraid and would wake up in the middle of the night thinking, oh, my gosh, Sandy, now what? What do I do? Well, this kind of speaks to your this story about Garrett. It mm -hmm. says that, well, you mentioned Garrett in your Facebook a lot. And I, I mm -hmm. like that because you say at this point today, Garrett would be X amount of years old. And you celebrate right. him all the time. And some right. people never talk about people who die in their life. And they don't mention them. I don't know if it's to protect others from sadness or to protect themselves. But what does mentioning Garrett 
a lot. I mean, you mention them a lot. What does that do for you? I think it makes it feel as though he didn't die in vain, that his okay. life meant something so strong that he is with me today in my heart as much as my living children are. Okay. And he gives me a springboard for my focus in life because I can look at that tragedy, yes, but I can also celebrate his life and say there were so many wonderful things that he taught me even in his death. And, and you know, the wonderful thing about Facebook is that to this day, and that was in 1993 that he died, um, to this day, the people, the kids that were his friends when he died, he was 16, right. um, still contact me on Facebook. Oh, and they'll okay. say, oh, I was just thinking about Garrett today, just wanted you to know. Exactly. And, and then you mention so- it, you mention it, and all your friends on Facebook, myself included, mm-hmm. get to say happy birthday to your son, and I've never even met him. Yeah. So that's really interesting. But could you tell us, in the light of that you mentioned Garrett a lot, could you tell us a story about the Mother's Day you had right after Garrett died and what happened? I mean, we don't have Mm. tons of time, but if you could encapsulate it, it would be wonderful. I think mothers need to hear your story. I will, because you know what? We need to believe in miracles. And I think this is a miracle that happened to me that I told the story of it in my blog and in greater detail, but I'll tell you just in, in cliff notes, um, I was really struggling, of course. It was uh, five months after he died that the first Mother's Day was coming up, and I thought, how am I going to do this? I, I, he was the first to call me mom. I don't know how I'm going to do this. Mm. So I was at that point going to the cemetery a lot, and you know, I had my reasons for doing that. A lot of people say, oh, I don't want to go to the cemetery. I never want, would want to do that. Well, for me, it was sort of a place that I would allow myself to grieve. And then when I came home, I was ready to be mom to my three other right. children. Well, that particular day, um, I w- had the kids in the back seat of the car, and we were running late because I'd picked them up from um, karate. And I said, you know what, kids, I just need to stop in and check in with Garrett do you mind? And they said, no, no, mom, let's go, let's go. Mm-hmm. So we drove to the cemetery and I was praying to him at his stone. I said, please, Garrett, help me through this Mother's Day. Mm-hmm. So I went home that night and <clears throat> we were cooking dinner and I was a little on edge, a little cranky. And the kids were saying, mom, I'm hungry, you know, as kids do. Right. And I said, but go to your rooms and clean your rooms because I cannot deal with you right now. Please, I'll mm-hmm. cook dinner ready well they went to their rooms and they were quiet they knew they were quiet mm-hmm. and suddenly Trevor my oldest boy now he came in and he was holding a card in his hand and he was trembling because mm-hmm. he was wrong he said mom you'll never believe what I found I looked at it and it was Garrett's handwriting mm-hmm. it was a happy mother's day card from my son who had died. I don't know when he wrote it. I had never received it before. Wow. The first time I'd seen it, it was his handwriting. It was on a uh, friend of ours had given all my kids their own stationery one year for Christmas. It was Mm -hmm. on a piece of stationery. And it said, Happy Mother's Day, Mom. You are so amazing. You're the mother of four children. You write books. And you help us all have a happy life. And I love you so much. 
And I right. I looked at it and I thought, where did this come from? Exactly. Simply a miracle. It could have been before he died. It could have been written. I have no idea. All I know is that it was a miracle that came at exactly the right time. Amazing. That is such a great story. And you said to your son, Trevor, how did this you know, happen? And he said he must have written it before he died. That yeah. That's amazing, just amazing. It gave yeah. me chills. I've already heard the story, but it gave me chills hearing you say yeah. it again. And Trevor had found it in Garrett's desk because we had moved Garrett's desk into Trevor's room. So he was cleaning his room like oh. I told him to. And it was a piece of paper that was stuck in the back of a drawer. Oh, wow. But it was an answer. It was an answer to your prayer when you said, "Help me get through this." It was a complete answer to my prayer, and I knew Garrett was with us all on that day. It's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Another thing in your blog, you say, "This is a quote: the castle walls had tumbled down, and I alone could fight back. Resilience was my only option." I had to reinvent myself, which speaks to what you had spoken about before. And you call them your eight steps to a resilient life or tools for bouncing back. Could you cover those um, in a short amount of time, but just cover them? I think that will help people. Well, I think number one is choose happy. And that's the whole premise of my blog, Breakthrough to Happy is that happiness is a choice. You wake up every day and you have that in within you to be able to say, I'm going to have a great day or I'm going to have a sad day. And I realized it more than ever after Garrett died is that I had to make that daily choice. And I had to make it because I had three other children. Yeah. Um, the second thing is that I, in, I initiated feeding my spirit. That's so important. I read 15 minutes every day from motivational books. And my personal choice is the Bible. That's one of them that I always read. But your personal choice may be a motivational book from Wayne Dyer. But as long as you feed your spirit with something that gives you hope and something positive, it starts the day out right. I always do it first thing in the morning with my cup of coffee. Okay. Number three is that you surround yourself with people who love you and you just let go of negative people. Very important. Oh, it's huge. <laughs> yes, Absolutely it is. Huge. And it's important when you're in a struggle to sh- to be with people who share your beliefs and support your goals because that is the way that you surround yourself. Just like elephants, uh, female elephants will surround a, a wounded female elephant until she is ready to stand on her own. I surrounded myself with my friends and family until I was ready to stand on my own. Number four is share laughter. And that's one of the things that I always instigated when Garrett died is that the kids and I would have lots of conversations about funny things that Garrett had done. Mm. And so we didn't just associate his memory with something sad. We associated it with with really joyful things, perfect, too. Perfect. And if you don't have joyful stories, just go on YouTube. Yes. <laughs> there are so many things that make you laugh, like funny right. dogs and, you know, talking cats. Right. Number five is creating something. And everyone has the power to create. I don't care if you say, oh, I've never been very talented at anything creative. Everybody is. Everybody starts by building sandcastles as a child and doing finger paints in kindergarten. Everybody has that potential. And so even if it's planting a garden, 
right. or doing finger paints. I just bought myself some of that uh, fun sand that you get at Aaron Brothers right. that makes these amazing shapes. It's $15, and every night I play with sand because <laughs> it feels so good between my fingers. But, yeah, and, you're create, comes... and create something you, in, in researching your information. With yeah. Julianne, when that happened, you wrote books, which Rosie right. the Imperfect Angel was one of the books. With right. Garrett, you planted a garden, and your quote right. was to see the different seasons of life. And when right. David's tragedy happened, you painted, and with each brush stroke, you poured out your heart. So that right. being creative also was cathartic. Oh, and I think that chaos fuels creativity. Right. And I think you actually grow as a creative person when you're at your, at your lowest point because it just sort of feeds it. It opens your brain to what you're feeling. Perfect. So my number six is recognize chaos as the door to transition and reorganization. So when you may be feeling your most chaotic and you may be feeling so afraid, it's just a stage because chaos, transition comes and is born out of chaos and you're just crossing through to the next chapter of your life. Um, number seven is that I use symbols to trigger my faith. So um, roses for me are a symbol of undying love and resilience. Uh, my son used to bring me a rose. He'd pick roses on his way home from school, walking home from school. A white so, rose, right? A white mm-hmm, rose. A white rose. So I often think of him, or if I'm having a down day, I'll go to the store and I'll buy myself a dozen white roses. I just know that those are a symbol to me that his love is still with me. And sometimes it's just a special rock that you find and you keep in your purse or something, anything Mm -hmm. that's symbolic to you. And then number eight is fuel your body with neurochemicals because after, after these tragedies, I always knew that if I went out and took a walk mm-hmm. or if I went to the gym, I knew I would always feel better once I got back. Perfect. You just can't exercise without those feel-good endorphins being blooming in your body. Because we have a medicine and cabinet within our own body if we accessed it. We do. Yes. We absolutely do. And then number nine is that if you're going through things like this, chances are so are your friends. And so... Sharing your feelings gives license to other people to share their feelings, Absolutely. Too. So it's a give and take. And so you're sharing, they want to share, and you're feeling good and renewed because you're changing people's lives and they're changing your life. And I think that that's one of the most important things for me. Perfect. Those are perfect tips, perfect tips for people who are listening to this. And I'd like to finish with, I believe you, if you hadn't handled your losses and your grief the way you did, your life right now would be totally different. You had a fairy tale life, and now as I look at your life, because we're friends and we have our friendship on Facebook, you now have a fairy tale life again as I see it. And although some of the aspects of your life are different, your life lesson is to all of us to teach us how to deal with our life losses because the way you deal with them does dictate your future outcome. Your daughter, who was once what people would call facially deformed, is the new face of Nordstrom in their print ads. And she's absolutely gorgeous. Your new husband is the love of your life and you're beautiful together. You're helping thousands of people deal with their own tragedies out of your tragedy. 
and even that is a positive aspect. And you still feel Garrett around you, you've told me. And he is in your life, but in a different way. You show us all that resilience is not only a tool to cope with, but it's truly the avenue to finding that fairy tale life again that we believed was totally and completely lost to us forever. So I'd like you to share with us your future projects. Uh, you're writing a book about your uh, experience with Garrett. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, well, and actually, what I realized in all of that, and thank you for so beautifully summarizing what I hope to convey to people, and that is that what are fairy tales? They're triumphs over adversity. Right. Fairy tale life doesn't mean that you have a perfect life all the time because every fairy tale has a problem and they resurrect a solution. And it's all resilience, finding right. their own resilience. And so my, I'm so excited about my next book because it's at the publisher now there. It's in galley stages. Perfect. It's called How to Survive the Worst That Can Happen, a parent's step-by-step guide to reclaiming joy after the loss of a child. And this is literally every chapter tells somewhat of a memoir-type story of mine and my experience because I think we learn from other people's experiences. Right. And then it also goes into um, what I call stepping stones, action steps for making your grief recovery active instead of passive. And so it's an interactive kind of book. It's experiential yes. too. Okay, perfect. Yes. Did you ever read The Artist's Way uh, by Julie Cameron? No, and I haven't. It was. But I it, will. It's a wonderful book on on resurrecting your creative life. I, I highly recommend it. She does that. She she talks about it in a chapter, and then she has you do your own action steps, and it really forces you to look at a lot of things and to open your right brain up and really let it Perfect. flow. And these are the things that I'm working well, on. Well, we will be book. looking forward to your new book. And if and they need to get on your blog and look at your stuff. I know you personally, and you're not only beautiful on the outside, you are beautiful on the inside. So they get need to get to know you on your blog and buy the book when it comes out because it will help thousands and thousands of people. I know that. I am so happy that you were on the show to help people with different aspects of their life and to teach them about resilience because nobody does it better than you. So thank oh, you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. I appreciate it. You're an inspiration to me. Okay. Thank you. This and all programs are available on transformyourliferadio.com. Check notes for guest information and content. Na, 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 na.